For all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors, all we know is to fight. Pray, they see God in everything I write here. Hello, Eddie Rye. Hello there, Angela T. Rye. Yes, this is a super special edition of On One with Angela Rye. It is the Father's Day edition. Daddy's in town. And so um, I wanted to sit with you. It's been three years since our last interview on On One with Angela Rye. Three years. Three years. So it was time. And on the other side of COVID where mommy could be here and you could be here, it was time. We have some really great questions from our podcast producer, Nas, for you that I would never have thought to ask you. So I'm going to ask you some of these, but I have some of my own questions too. My first question comes from, there is a story that we like to tell. We were in an elevator. Um, I don't know where we were going, but a reporter. The got, King County Courthouse. <laughs> what were we doing at the courthouse? Uh, I think we were, I, I was making, in a meeting or making testimony before the county council. Okay, so we were in an elevator and this white reporter gets on the elevator and says, Eddie Rye, if it isn't the perpetual troublemaker. Yes, and I said, you should hear what the others say. He was nice. Yes, and I was very upset that day. It was very obvious, too. I was ready to fight. <laughs> Daddy, why do the people call you a troublemaker? Well, you know, anytime you try to uh, uh, initiate change and it goes against the grain of what people perceive to be the norm, uh, put aside in the best interest of African descendants of the United States enslaved, my black people, I'm going to have something to say about it. And if we're being left out, shortchanged, I'm going to speak up about it. If I see discrimination against my people, I'm going to speak up about that. Mm -hmm. But I also speak up on behalf of other people of color as well. Mm -hmm. And you've gotten awards because of your advocacy for other people of color. Yeah, I have. I'm very proud of it, too. Mm -hmm. You should be. So where did that come from, Dad? Where did the innate desire to speak up for the voiceless to protect those who may not be in a position to advocate for themselves? Where does that come from? Actually, it came really, I think, from my mother was really outspoken. Matter of fact, her relatives was glad she left Louisiana when she did because uh, she would, would talk back. And, you know, down south in the 40s and 50s, you didn't talk back to white people, and she had a problem with She would do that. But also, uh, your grandfather, my father, Eddie Rice Sr., was appointed by A. Philip Randolph to be the Northwest organizer for the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the only union a black man could belong to in those days. And uh, so he was like, uh, everybody was kind of undercover in those days because of uh, the racism and discrimination. But uh, he uh, was a very quiet organizer. He was one that he was literate. Uh, he would uh, read the Bible to the porters when they were coming back without working. He'd also read uh, the black newspapers to him. So if they had a conversation with, with someone, he also read the mainstream papers to him as well. So if any of the passengers made any comments about anything, they would be able to, when they got back home, uh, they would be able to talk about the issues because they've heard my dad read to him. And then another thing is that when it came down to uh, letters and he would write letters also, he would read letters. And I remember one time he said, when the news was bad, he'd always say, look, Pruitt, I didn't write this letter. But this is what it says. So when you say Pruitt, is that Elsie um, Pruitt's husband? Yeah. What? Yeah. They were. They were. They were in. They, the, they all were. They were. Uh, they, they were, they I, were I, all I knew home importer. Right. Right. I didn't know that. You're right. Pruitt. Uh, there was a man called Mr. Howard Simon Dearborn. Uh, K. Uh, K. Hall. I mean, there was just. I mean, we knew all of them because uh, my father would be with them all the time. So I got a chance to meet them all as well. What is your fondest memory? Um, as a child in Shreveport, Louisiana? My fondest memory was uh, probably uh, going from one grade to the next. Uh, there was also the Juneteenth celebrations we had. In Northwest Louisiana, we separate, uh, Shreveport is right on the border of the Texas, mm -hmm. uh, the, on the border of Texas and Arkansas. So we celebrated, uh, from a, as far as I can remember, we celebrated Juneteenth uh, in Shreveport. And when really? we moved to Seattle, uh, there was just some people that did. And then, as a matter of fact, I was on a radio program with uh, Reverend Harry Walden yesterday. She's from Florida. She's 70 plus years old. And out of Florida, they didn't know anything about Juneteenth. Wow. Yeah. 
They do now, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you feel about the um, legislation that was just passed to make Juneteenth a federal holiday? Uh, it was it was way past due. There are so many things that we need that needs to be caught upon in terms of opportunities, economic justice, educational opportunities. There are a lot of and voting rights. Yeah, there are a lot of things that you know we we really got to push on. Do you think that um, there's a desire for the majority in in this instance? I'm not talking about uh, Democrats. I'm talking about white people um, to focus on symbolic victories over substance. Well, you know, that's difficult because, you know, you got so many dynamics in that community. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, I think, you know, each state has two senators and some states don't have as many people as Compton and Watts put together, yeah. I would say. Yeah. You know, but they have uh, this voice. And uh, it's just unfortunate that some people uh, like Senator Joe Manchin thinks that he can get something done bipartisan when Mitch McConnell has told him over and over again it's not going to happen, that he's there to, uh, to uh, uh, defeat any uh, plans or programs that President Biden has. Like he said, he wanted to make Barack Obama a one-term yeah. president. So, I mean, there are some things that we have to look at uh, inward. We also got to start looking seriously at uh, what are blacks in the military around the world fighting for? We're in South Korea, we're in Japan, we're in Germany, we're in England. Matter of fact, President Biden was over in England Air Force Base, significant number of black folks over there. How would you feel in a foreign country and somebody walk up to you in South Korea and say, why are you over here? Your people can't even vote. So I think that, uh, you know, there's gonna, times going to have to come where blacks in the military have to say, look, if we can't vote, we can't fight. Okay, and besides, we also got to look at the fact who us who identifies who our allies are going to be? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's hard for me to go and fight for someone who comes over here, not even a citizen, and oppose affirmative action for black folks and make derogatory statements. That happened with Chinese immigrants out of Hong Kong. Not all Asians, but Chinese immigrants. The Asian people like we grew up with and worked with right. were for affirmative action. So I, I definitely differentiate. When I, I just can't say I differentiate because there's a significant number of uh, Asian people that make up the Asian community. But the folks, uh, the progressive folks that I've been working with for the last 40 plus years on the right side of affirmative action. Yeah. And they were very upset with what was happening because we know that uh, I call them the proud boys, but they have been opposed to affirmative action. They organized these folks. and But these affluent immigrants paid them to oppose affirmative action. And even with interpreters, they were making derogatory statements about black folks. And uh, Folks from India that we're working with right now on, on the MLK Ghani Empowerment Initiative, they're saying uh, the president of the company, is, of the uh, company, not only the company, but the organization is saying, had it not been for blacks in the civil rights movement, my father wouldn't be here. Right. A lot of folks in my community, in the Indian American community, got to understand their opportunities were created by black folks in the civil rights movement, along with a lot of other immigrants. I mean, it's really hurtful where our people go and die for someone and then put people coming to this country and act as racist as, as, as a bigot, you know? Yeah. So uh, that's hard to accept. But you know what? Uh, I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to call it out. If you're wrong, you're wrong. You um, have talked about the differentiation that needs to be made when you're talking about the Asian community. Black folks also aren't monolithic, um, but to the point around um, the, the difference in the diversity that exists in the Asian community, one of the um, rewards that you've received was from the Japanese American Citizens League for your advocacy. Um, why is it important for people to understand the varying distinctions that exist in the black community, in the Asian community, in the indigenous community? Why is it important for us to um, shine light on those differences? It's very important because of the fact when we moved to Seattle, it was a very small black population because of uh, of racism, we were all compelled to live in the same neighborhood, so we grew up knowing each other. And this is from like '52 on. Uh, but uh, the Japanese American Citizens League is the oldest uh, Asian civil rights organization. They were in Selma, Alabama, in 1965, and they went back in 2015. An award you're talking about, the Sam Soji Community Service Award, I received in in 2011. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, there are a lot of folks. Uh, you know, the Senator Bob Hasegawa, Representative Sharon Tomiko Santos, Toshiko Hasegawa, yeah. Michael Wu, like Michael Wu is a Chinese brother that 
led the charge with that construction workers association and fought and closed jobs down to get uh, jobs for black folks in five building trade unions. Mm -hmm. But then again, in uh, October, 1972, I went occupy uh, the Beacon Hill school, which is now El Centro de la Raza. Yeah. So, you know, and then because of the fact that during the uh, construction workers protests, uh, the Black Student Union from University of Washington, E.J. Briscoe, Larry Gossett, those guys, but also the Chicano division came, led by Sam Martinez, who's the counselor. So we worked uh, you know, together, and uh, the UCWA, the construction workers' demonstrations, led to us also supporting uh, the, the takeover of that uh, school, that, which is now El Centro de la Raza, and has been for the last 40, 47, 48 years. So that's an accomplishment. It is. So let's go back to, we were talking about your fondest memory from Shreveport and also the activism that you really believe came as an outgrowth of your parents' roles as organizers and outspoken advocates for people. Um, did any of that come from the friends you ha you chose to hang around? Were you all like-minded in the ways that you approached advocating or looking out for people? Well, you know, as a rule, uh, I gravitate to people who I sh share the same uh, philosophy, political ideology. So that's just something. If I see someone, and I don't have to be in front, if I see someone with a worthy cause, I'll get behind whoever I can. It's like right now, you don't have to be the drum major out front. You can also send emails. You can make phone calls. All those things help, especially when we're talking about uplifting the black community. When it comes down to uh, economics, we have to look and see where all the money is going and make sure we're included. Yeah. Because a, a closed mouth will not get fed. And, and if you don't ask, you don't receive. So I also try to make sure I'm, and I'm a member of the NAACP. And if anybody calls me about a discrimination problem, are you a member of the NAACP? You can't invest $30 in, in your civil rights mm -hmm. and, and, and an organization is going to advocate for you. Then, hey, you know, you have a problem. Yeah. But I, I refer people to NAACP all the time. When you um, consider your activism, what has been the hardest thing for you? You've been fighting a long time. Well, I'm not exactly a teenager. But <laughs> 79. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, the, the hardest thing is having um, rules and regulations on the books. It's like uh, we've had a concept of uh, a minority subcontractor goal under a white man's foot. And uh, I can't count four or five successful black construction companies in Seattle mm -hmm. because of the fact that when they get that relationship where they're under someone else's, we, as a matter of fact, we lost four black contractors on one job, the Seattle Tunnel Partners. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we have black people that did some covering up for these folks. Why do they do that? that that's a story everywhere. That, that, I mean, that's, that's just their job. But the thing about it is that we have to hold them all accountable. Just because somebody's black, they got to be on, they got to be right. Yeah. If, if, you know, and the thing about it is that we got to go to the top and make sure that we had a support from the Congressional Black Caucus, from local elected officials. Because the biggest travesties, man, is that when they allowed white women to become disadvantaged business enterprises. Mm -hmm. And in Washington State, uh, the federal money 80%, over 80% is consistently gone to white, white women. women. That's and, like affirmative action. Exactly, exactly. It's benefited white women the most. Yes. Let me ask you this. You referenced a moment ago um, sharing philosophies and political ideology with some of your comrades in the movement. When you consider your political ideology, how would you describe it? What is your political ideology? I, I think I just being... Uh, anti-racist and being a realist and advocating for inclusion for African descent of the United States and slave. I'm being very specific about that. One of the things, when we talk about reparations, one of the things we can do right now is have a federal designation for African descendants of the United States and slave. We got a you're, June And you're saying United States enslaved. Enslaved, absolutely, enslaved. Yes. Because they didn't volunteer. They were enslaved. Yeah. Okay. But you and, don't say slaves anymore. Now you say enslaved. In, on, on this issue, it's enslaved because we're talking about people who, against their will, were brought over here right. and were enslaved. So 
uh, there are enough black folks who work for the government. We've, I've talked to people who have retired recently. They said, I'd be more than happy to go back to HUD or go back to SBA mm-hmm. if we had a black business administration, a black veterans administration. But it'd be uh, specific to African descendants of the United States enslaved. The people who built this joint for free. Yes. That's what we're talking mm-hmm. about. So, uh, and if it's not written in and not ran by us, it will not re- reach us. Daddy, you know there are, um, and I found this out recently because I'm sure you saw over the course of the last election cycle, um, a, a, a number of people that started talking about reparations, but in a derogatory way um, for folks whose slave ships landed in the Caribbean or folks whose slave ships landed in Brazil. And it was very divisive. There was um, somebody who's known as one of the fathers of reparations, Ron Daniels, who I recently had on for a podcast. I don't know if this is going to come out before this one or not, but he talked about how a lot of the reparations movement in the United States came as an outgrowth from a, a, a summit from Caribbean folks mm-hmm. and how important it was for us to work together on reparations for all of us. Not that the United States pays the Caribbean who really should be paid by the UK, but or not, you know, by Brazil. But everybody should be working for that common cause because we're still all connected. And I would say that once we get ours, we'll help everybody else. Yeah. Uh, I, he, I think it's a monumental task to try to coordinate that many countries when we don't have, don't have uh, equality. Well, that work's already been done. He, yeah. he, they've been working together for decades. Yeah. And yeah. he was saying that even... The reparations proposal that is in mm-hmm. Congress came from that Caribbean okay. summit. Well, and I applaud, I, mm-hmm. I applaud him for that. But when it comes down to the economic inclusion, yeah, I, I don't. That's what I'm talking about. When you're talking about the federal designation of African descent for the United States, for the United States enslaved. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's very specific to us. Yeah, because we built this joint for free. We didn't build the Caribbean for free. We weren't in the Caribbean. We were here. Well, what do you? So, what do you we, say? We didn't. We didn't die. They, we, I don't know. We didn't. We died in all the wars. Okay, so you know. But when you think about people like Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, Shirley Chisholm, mm-hmm. these are all folks of Caribbean descent. Exactly, and they, who helped to exactly, and and they would be included. And the other thing that because right now, as far as that goes, uh, uh, in the program with MLK Gandhi, if a white man is married to a black woman, they have kids. That man can come in because we worried about the kids. Right. Okay, so, so if right. we have folks like we have other African brothers and sisters who are working in the black community, That's right. they're qualified. So I'm just saying, was, our whole it, thing is mm-hmm. that when you come into the Emma Gandhi, the first thing you're going to get is the history of African descent of the United States enslaved. Yeah. Okay, so even when you get the digital technology training, you're going to still know all about us. Yeah. And if, you, if you're a white man married to a black woman or a, a, a black woman married to a white man, uh, you qualify. It's like... Uh, Barack Obama and, and, and Vice President Kamala Harris wouldn't qualify, but they worked in the black community. But Barack Obama, I mean, just saying, people who worked in the black community, no matter where they're from, mm-hmm. they, was, they would qualify. That, yeah, yeah that's, that's, what we're that's, saying. that's the same thing Ron Daniels yeah, saying. Yeah, no, I agree with him all the way. So, um, and then I think the other part of it is even, you know, watching from having Reverend Jackson's picture on our fireplace mantle to now you've always advocated a rainbow coalition kind of advocacy. So that isn't exclusionary. It's not the kind that's like, oh, you're different than me. I hate you. I'm going to focus on me first. You're just saying, I'm going to put my oxygen mask on first and then I'm make sure that we're all good. Exactly. But I've seen you walk and chew gum at the same time. You've been fighting on black contractors issues and still standing in solidarity with Mexican Americans or the Chicano movement or Or the Japanese Americans. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. When, when you, um, uh, when, let me ask you this, because I was asking this on the special that I did on Black Wall Street. When did you first learn about Black Wall Street? Well, let's see. I think I heard about it when I was about, about 10 years old because of Pullman Porters, the, the conversations. But, you know, it, didn't, it, it never came back up again. Mm-hmm. And it, said, it was just, it was a pitiful, it was pitiful what they did to them people, you know. But then again, so many travesties were happening down south to black folks. Yeah. You know. After slavery, too. Uh, well, I'm just saying, this year was up. I'm talking about the 40s and the 50s. Yeah, that's things right. were still happening. Yeah. yeah. But then again, in, um, we first moved to Seattle uh, in 1952. Blacks couldn't try on clothes down, downtown. No. Could not try on clothes, could not eat in restaurants. 
I didn't know that. Yes. So what did what did you do? Do you remember that? Like, do you remember seeing that and feeling that, or do you? Just well, I mean, I was no, I was no, I was a little boy because people always get their stuff to go. Because I mean, I've seen that in, in, in Louisiana. So you, you could know, order it, but you couldn't sit in there. No, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. And, and then that would depends on who, who you know, like uh, say somebody like Elgin Baylor. He mm-hmm. he was in sale. He could do anything he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, there were some exceptions, but for the most part. Uh, no, blacks were not, you know, all, but the thing about it is all of the waiters and all the maitre d's and all the uh, fancy restaurants and stuff were black. Do you remember experiencing racism in Seattle when you were, you moved there when you were 10? Yeah. Do you remember experiencing racism in Seattle? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, when we first moved, we lived in, there was an apartment complex across the street. Blacks couldn't live in the apartment complex. And there was a little black, a white kid I was playing with, mm-hmm. and I, I, the, he, we and he and I were walking into the apartment building, and, the, and this white man said, "Now you know that end, that end boy don't have no business being in this building." And that was the first part. What did you do? I didn't. I went back, went back across the street. I was just here from Louisiana. I didn't know what a man might do. You were scared. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because anytime they folks got mad, white folk man got mad down south, there was going to be some retribution. So, uh, no, no, no. I, Do you remember experiencing racism in Louisiana before you left? Oh, absolutely. Because I was taught if you're on the sidewalk, we lived in the city. If you're on the, if you walk, and we, after we're downtown somewhere, because in our community, it was all black people. But if a white man walked down the street, you had to step off the sidewalk. Uh, and, I want to remember one time, um, I, one of my younger uncles, I can remember was Edie or Esau, he had me at a store or something. I asked a white man, why? And, and he looked at my, my uncle, got so scared, he didn't know what to do. He said, why don't you ever say nothing to a white man again? Don't, don't say nothing to him. Just look the other way. Don't say, even if you think they're wrong, don't say nothing. So he got real scared and got apologetic. So I knew something was up there. Oh, my gosh. That's but crazy. your grandmother now. I know. <laughs> But he was glad she left. He was glad she left there, because you know if you were standing in a store, a white person come get in front of you in line. Mm-hmm. And my mother pushed this lady. <laughs> her her younger her younger younger brother was with her. Mm-hmm. He went and got her. And we got out of there. Goodness, and Gramps had to leave someplace too. What happened with the Gramps story? Well, that was one of them Joseph stories. What happened? Well, he was doing some work for a family, and um, the man, the, the man's, the white man's wife took a liking to my father and made an accusation, and he had to go, and his uh, aunt, they call her Indian Rose, I never met her, but she lived on the reserve. We didn't know if it was in Louisiana, Arkansas, or Texas, mm-hmm. Choctaw Indian, and so he had to go hang out there for about five or six months. And then uh, shortly after that, he became a Pullman porter because he had three older brothers who were Pullman porters. All sent their, their kids to Southern University. That's where I would have went. Mm-hmm. And they all came back and worked in the educational system. The Andersons and the Rise and the Bates uh, were uh, my cousins, and they all they all worked in the – most of them worked in the, uh, the Shreveport school system. Wow. Okay, so you have um... – had the experience of having amazing parents who were not just welcoming of six of y'all, but also some neighborhood kids who they adopted along the way. Like the United Nations. <laughs> like the <laughs> United no, Nations. No hatred at any Rice Senior's house. No hatred. What is the greatest lesson you learned from your dad? Uh, to be forgiving and also to be uh, receiving of people. You know, uh, regardless of some people, oh, that person is this, that person is that. But he always said, whatever relationship you have with someone, that's your relationship. Don't let somebody else tell you about another person that you don't know, never met, and, and never have established a relationship with. You go ahead and just, hey, it's a one-on-one thing all the way. Mm-hmm. What is um, the most difficult experience you had with your dad? I got caught doing something. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get whooped? Yeah, well, a good one. <laughs> he whooped you? Yeah, he, he, he gave me a few licks. With the belt? Uh, yeah, I think so. 
he would fake a uh, beating on my sisters. So he'd, <laughs> he'd hit up against the wall. He wouldn't. He, he was almost like me. Dad, you whooped me. When? When I was three. I, oh, on I, Christmas. How many? What kind of whipping? Tell, tell the people the truth. Is it a uh, pat? See, look at this. But you broke my heart. There's a photo evidence of this. <laughs> you got you were in trouble. Mommy was mad at you. Bubba was mad at you. I was brokenhearted, and you looked sad. And then Granny had to whoop you after that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when you um, is there any? Who's your goddad? Yeah, and I'm trying. To, I don't. I don't. Can't remember if it was. It was one. It was a Pullman port. I know that thing might have been AC Chocolate. Oh wow, AC Chocolate. Mm -hmm. That sounds like he's from the country. Yeah, well, a lot of folks were from the country. The Pullman porters that let them get to the city. Yeah. When you think about other people in your life who have been father figures, who are those people? I would have to say, first of all, we have the Dr. Samuel Kelly, mm -hmm. who also was your mother's mentor, mentor and boss. Yeah, so he was on the board uh, of uh, the Central Area Motivation Program, the Anti-Poverty Agency. That hired me to be the director of the educational talent search program to recruit students to go take advantage of opportunities back then mm -hmm. during the Great Society program. It was really trying to help black folks. Yeah. And they were opening up the doors. Like, you know, you have more blacks on the University of Washington campus in 1974 than you have in 2021. That's, That's a sad commentary. You know, you have blacks on the basketball and football team generate $70 million a year, but yet they can't use any of that money to go and recruit. Black students from HBCUs to take advantage of graduate professional schools at UW. So, we, you know, there's, that's, anti-affirmative actually has nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. That money is coming from somewhere else. So, we got some folks on the board of regents we're going to be meeting with. The Daddy, you group. were answering who was a father figure to you, and you back into, <laughs> we, we organize it right now, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so, but did he help to pave the way for you to see the issues around higher education in that way, what 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 made him a father figure to yeah, you? No, you know, because he was very open. I mean, you know, he, his house was always open. You could always reach him if there's any issues I had, wanted to discuss with him, I could. Um, and then, you know, um, then some folks that wasn't there, with my age, you know, uh, gave me a lot of wisdom as well, too. Like who? Well, I, I got a lot of info, a lot of uh, insight from uh, from Julian Bond, for example. Um, he's not your age. He's older than you. I know that he's not here either, but, you know, yeah. he's, I'm just saying, I'm just not that much older, though. How old would he have been? I think Julian probably would have been 80, 81, probably. Oh, that's it? No. Yeah. I'm not to look at He and E.J. Brisker were uh, really? freshmen at Morehouse together. As a matter of fact, they were in front of a uh, protest in front of Lester Maddox's restaurant when the, they handed out axe handles uh, for... For them to take the beatings. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're right. He's only three years older than you. I did not realize that. Okay. So then what about, okay, so Julian Bond, who else? Uh, the, the late Perrin Mitchell. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me why Perrin Mitchell. And tell people who he, Perrin Mitchell is. For I, a congressman from, from, uh, from Baltimore, Maryland. But he is a person that, that taught me a lot about how the system worked about how the committees work, how appropriations work, mm -hmm. how to advocate. Because back in them days, there wasn't no emails in them 70s. Yeah. But phone calls, and you got to send a letter. I don't care if they, you, know, you write the letter for them, but they got to hear from people. Mm -hmm. So that, and um, also, um, well, actually, I learned I learned quite a bit from, from George Fleming, too, who was on the state senate, mm -hmm. you know. His, his wife was my preschool teacher. That's right. Campy. That's right. So, okay, one person who I am shocked. Her name is Tina Fleming. Make sure she got her shout out. Yes, shout out to Miss Fleming. Daddy, the one person who I'm shocked you have not mentioned yet is. I cannot believe you haven't said this. Dr. Fletcher? Oh, Art Fletcher, absolutely. I'm like, how did you absolutely. miss that? Absolutely. No, that's, that, he was my, yeah. This is the only Republican, black Republican, that I can remember that you never called a handkerchief head. Well, back in the, <laughs> well, back, he's it's a different. father of affirmative action. Yeah, but then again, kind of back in those days, in the late 60s and early 70s, 
the black Republicans like Robert Weaver and Art Fletcher and Sam Jackson, those guys, mm -hmm. they work right with the 13 members of the Congressional Black Office. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think Weaver was over HUD. Uh, these other guys right in the White House, and they work they work right with uh, the, the members of the Congressional Black Caucus. So now that's the whole thing is turned around in terms of, you know, where Republicans are these days. Mm -hmm. But Art Fletcher uh, came to, uh, matter of fact, it was a tragedy that brought him, I think, to Seattle because mm -hmm. he was uh, in, he, had, he also played professional football. Yeah. He was drafted by, uh, and he got us a, a job with the Kansas Department of Transportation. That's why he learned about all contracting and construction. And then he went to uh, Pasco, Washington to head up a uh, a co-op. And what he did is that instead of them having a nonprofit, he had them buy the gas station, had them buy the grocery store, mm -hmm. and they got upset with him. But uh, he ended up running. He and uh, the late Sam Smith were the first two blacks to win citywide elections. Art Fletcher won uh, city council seat in Pasco, Washington. Sam Smith won the city council seat in Seattle. And then in uh, 1968, uh, Dr. Fletcher ran for lieutenant governor of Washington, and he won the Republican nomination. He defeated a famous hydroplane driver for the Republican nomination and came within 50,000 votes of uh, beating John Sherberg for the lieutenant governorship. But that showing uh, catapulted him back to the Nixon administration, where he thought he was going to be over SBA, and they changed their mind. Like, oh, we can't build that, well, that money. Mm -hmm. But they put him in a position as Assistant Secretary of Labor, and he had him put employment standards on there. And he did some things like held up. Uh, they had all the blacks in the lower cancer causing jobs, and he demanded they be moved up in the Newport News, Virginia shipping yard, I think. Mm -hmm. And so the unions told him to go to hell, and he held up uh, – 28,000 people's checks for six for 16 weeks. Wow. And they went all the way nuts. So uh, he was assistant secretary of labor. So then he went and uh, he was uh, with the United Negro College Fund. He's the one that coined the phrase, a man's a terrible, terrible, terrible thing, thing to waste. waste. Or as Dan Quill once said, it's a terrible thing to lose your mind. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> real bad, too. That shit is bad, too. <laughs> but anyway, so no. So I, I know I learned, you know, when... Uh, Ward Connolly, the same one that killed affirmative action in California. Now, he is a Republican who you've called a handkerchief at. Anytime you kill affirmative action, you're I'm not mad at it. I'm just <laughs> yeah. saying, you literally were in a dinner where he was speaking and you put a table napkin on your head. Well, to three symbolize. of us did. Two black Republicans did. Nat just Jackson <laughs> and the late J.J. Jones. We got up. I didn't know J.J. was a Republican. Yeah. What? You had a lot of. So, this explains why I was confused. Did I ever tell you this story about what happened on the Hill? Go ahead. So part of the reason why I went to D.C. is Dr. Fletcher's urging um, Mr. Gayton, Gary Gayton, mm -hmm. who's my mentor and has been like a big brother to you two, um, urged me to go to D.C. When I got to D.C., um, studying for the bar or getting ready to take the bar and was doing a job search, I went into Capitol Hill, walked into the Judiciary Committee office and said, I'm about to be a lawyer. I need to get a job. And the this older white woman says, well, honey, what? party are you in? And I said, it doesn't matter. I need to get a job. And she said, no, this is Capitol Hill. It matters. But I was so confused because it, growing up with you, you would be mad at the Republicans, the Democrats, the Green Party, the Libertarians, the Independents, everybody. Like you were, if they were against um, Black uh, liberation, against Black economic development, Anything that you were fighting for, you were mad at them. So I really didn't understand <laughs> parties like that. Like, I knew you voted for Democrats, but I was like, he'd be mad at everybody. I think I'm fine. I can work anywhere. She was like, no. I was like, that white lady saved my life on the hill. Because <laughs> I was like, it doesn't matter. I need a job. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's just between getting a job on the hill and working in the hood. <laughs> Well, you, I, yeah. you can be mad at everybody if you're in the hood, but if you're on the hill, you do have to identify with a party. Well, you should have told me that before I marched myself in there and told that lady I needed a job. She helped me anyway. Yeah, well, Shout out to you. the white lady at the Judiciary Committee. That was great. I don't know who she was, but she definitely helped. Okay, let me see what some of these questions are. Uh, oh, this is a good one. <laughs> What's the most embarrassing thing that Gramps ever did to you? <laughs> what is it? 
Well, if your mother is here, so I have to be careful. <laughs> She's fine. She's been with you 51 years. She's not going nowhere. Um, Mommy, does she have permission I'm to say this? Mom no, says no, she want to hear the story. No, 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 no. I mean, it wasn't the most embarrassing thing, but what he would do is that if I went out and was drinking or something, he would have me get Saturday morning real early, put me in the car, roll up all the windows, and I had one of them damn cigars. <laughs> I would be sicker than I don't know what. And that was Did a lot worse. Did you throw up in the car? I, I felt like it, but that was a lot worse than, than being embarrassed somewhere. Oh, my God. Why did he do that? He didn't want to. Because knew, he knew that, that I, I should have been drinking that wine. You were underage? Kind of. Ooh, Dad. <laughs> How young were you? Well, you know, I graduated from high school when I was 16, though. I know, but that doesn't explain how old were you, sir. <laughs> oh, probably 18 or 19. Mm-hmm. You didn't drink no wine when you were 16? No. Okay, that's good. O- only homemade wine. Only? <laughs> we used to sell the dicks for 50 cents a shot on Sunday nights because you couldn't buy liquor in Seattle. What did you Washington call it? State. Huh? What did you call it? Pluck. Pluck? Yeah. That sound bad. That well, sound like they, yuck. They was paying 50 cents. They was paying 50 cents a shot for it. You was a, you was a homemade wine slinger? Well, I, I I'm mean, learning new stuff about my dad today. <laughs> did you know he used to sling homemade wine? No, Mommy had, didn't know had, either. Yeah. Buddy Williams and James Banks. Don't start calling it. Don't be snitching. Don't call oh, everybody no, out. No, they, they, they're all right. They're looking down. They uh, both, my, my buddies are gone. But yeah, we, yeah. Okay, so um, that's the most embarrassing thing that Gramps ever did to you. What's the most embarrassing thing that Bubba ever did to you and that I ever did to you? Wow. <laughs> like, it's so many. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where do you want me to start? Whichever one comes to mind. Well, no, I wasn't embarrassed, but... Um, you got to pick one that's embarrassing. I guess <laughs> if it wasn't funny, I would have been embarrassed when you had just got your... What did you just get? from? So we had to... Uh, try, Andrew, your mother's uncle and aunt over there, oh. my mother and father. First communion. <laughs> yeah, first communion. And the, you were trying to Mom's catch the, already laughing. You trying to catch the cat. And we were outside in the patio. Everybody was eating dinner, and I was like, "Come here, you little!" <laughs> and, uh, and everybody kind of what? Is so embarrassing. And then they found, this found, is more embarrassing for me than you. You thought it was funny, but anyway, I didn't. In my defense, can I, can go I, ahead. And tell my me defense is my dad always said "little bastard." I had no idea it was a bad word because of how much you said it. I had no idea it was a bad word. Did I say it that much? Yes! <laughs> and he used to say it to the cat. I thought it was a nickname for the cat. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sorry. I misled you. <laughs> okay, what about Bubba? Uh, Bubba is my brother, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, this week or last week? Dad! <laughs> oh, my God! No! Whenever the, the the thing that you that embarrassed you the most when Brian growing up, let's put um, some parameters on this. Take him to the University of Washington football games. Why? Walking across the Mile Lake Bridge. Wait, why? Because <laughs> he was afraid to walk across the bridge. So what would happen? Because you know you could see the water down yeah. below. So he'd be like, he would be looking up. Oh, he'd be stiff. Your mother have to hold him by his arm. Oh, that's sad. Mommy's laughing at that too. Okay, so. Um, those are the most embarrassing moments. What about what about your proudest moments as um, as a dad? Well, seeing you walk across the stage quite a few times to get various degrees, and also being seeing you um, in D.C. as um, with Homeland Security, being the youngest uh, senior advisor on the Hill and general counsel, and then moving to the Congressional Black Caucus is the general counsel, executive director, and then seeing you on the tube and seeing you on on one. I always say the, on the one. It's on one. On one. On one, one is like when people be like, oh, they crazy. They be like, oh, they on one. That's what it is. Okay. It's like, look. I got you. Okay. <laughs> like, look. Uh, okay. So now I want to ask you. Oh, I never asked you that. I want to know that, too. What do you admire the most about your dad? The fact that he kept food on the table, even had um, 
worked for the city, and then we had uh, three or four janitorial spots we did, you know, so that was, uh, he was consistent about that. Mm -hmm. We didn't have all we wanted, but we had all we needed. Mm. What is the thing you admire the most about your kids? Uh, The success that I see you achieving, that's number one. And, you know, uh, we don't have anybody that's critically ill or currently incarcerated, so yeah, that's a blessing. What's the thing you admire most about mommy as a her, mother? Her, her patience, uh, her caring, uh, and her insight on a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's very, very meticulous. She is very meticulous. This is true. Um, is there a father in your friend group who you're like, they are a really good dad? I guess when I look in the mirror, but <laughs> so humble too. <laughs> no, I mean, um, I mean, I've seen, uh, uh, you know, a lot, like a lot of my friends like pastor Joe Carter, uh, and, uh, uh, Dr. Charles Mitchell, uh, Bob Flowers, there was, and Mickey were out, well, I say Bob and Mickey are always together, but. Those guys, they did a Who's real good job. Who's my godparents, everybody? Yeah, yeah they, they, did a, they did a real good job. Uh, I think about my Ross Flowers, Dr. Ross Flowers yeah. and Dr. Chris Flowers, you know, so, mm-hmm. yeah. What do you, what do you def- or how do you define success as a father? Not being in jail. Uh, <laughs> having... Um, what if you go to jail and it wasn't your fault, like you're wrongfully accused? Well, that's that's a different thing altogether. I'm talking about if you're committing a criminal act. Okay. I don't mean criminal trespass. I've been to jail for that. <laughs> Demonstration. Apartheid protest. Yeah, well, and and sometimes they, didn't, they, didn't, they just handcuff me and take me all the way to jail. That's going to be too much trouble. Mm-hmm. But anyway. So not being in jail is your only? Well, no, no. I mean, just to see, to see the success that, you know, that that I see with, with, with you, um, that, you know, that, that to me, and also, um, actually all of, all of the, the young ladies and young people in your, your group, mm-hmm. out of NAACP Axel, they're all accomplishing so I many things. That. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pleased to see, uh, the successes out of your, your group. What's the toughest moment that we had as, um, father, daughter? Which is like this, like oh, this is a hard time. I don't know how we're gonna make it through this one. Well, I never felt that way. I did. I know you did, but I didn't. <laughs> you never felt like you never were like, oh, I can't wait till she's done being a teenager. She crazy. I would like the time when he's out there shooting the basketball with the, the cussing music on, and I got man, did worse that's than... still not fair. <laughs> tell tell your version of that story. Oh, when you uh, you came in, you had who was that playing? Some rap, naughty by nature. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so I said, turn that C H I T off. C H I T. And you were you wanted it to come off because why did you want the music off? Because they were using profanity. They were cussing. Yes, and you like used I a did. cuss word at me to turn it off. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. And then I said, "This is hypocritical," and I got in trouble. <laughs> Yes, you did. This is awful. <laughs> well, I think the the one moment that I think is so um, that stands out for me is I remember getting ready for church, and I don't know what we were we were fussing at each other about something, and I said, "The more I get closer to God, the further I get away from you." Do you remember me saying that? Uh, I, I know that I missed that one altogether. It was so crazy, but I said it, and then I'm like, you know, I wonder. You know, as I've gotten older, I'm like, I wonder how I saw God in that moment, Um, because, you know, it was a very legalistic, you know, you can and can't do kind Mm -hmm. of God that I had created. Mm -hmm. I don't really feel like that's the God that you guys taught me about Mm -hmm. or the one that I feel like I experience now. And the more that I've thought about it, um, I realized that like the freedom of expression, the the, the Jesus that is a giver and that is so sacrificial is exactly who you are. And so it's like, it's so crazy to me that in my judgment of what was right or wrong at the time, 
that I would have missed all of the many ways that you show up as a social justice hero and advocate for so many. Um, and your Christ-likeness is in your um, your love, the unconditional love, like your, your lack of judgment for people. Um, I always joke about you've never met an enemy in your life. Um, and you find commonality with anybody. Like we'll get in the Uber car and you'll be like, oh, my car has seat belts too. And then there's a conversation that comes <laughs> out of that, which I admire, um, but I don't have it. I like, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know how to strike up a conversation with this person. Where do you get that from dad? Like that ability to find common ground with anybody. Actually, I, I think from my father. And I think that was because of the fact he was a Pullman porter yeah. and then an organizer. So he had to constantly, cause a lot of people go into a shell, like he said, a lot of the brothers that wasn't really that educated, they would all go into a shell, so he had to have find a way to bring them out to get them engaged and stuff like that. So where I think, is your shell? Huh? Where is your shell? I, I, I don't have a shell. You don't have a shell. <laughs> I don't have a shell. No. Were you? Do you think you were like born that way, or do you feel like you were groomed that way? Well, I think uh, watching my father at uh, early age, and you know. Uh, seeing uh, how, uh, as a little boy, seeing the kind of respect that A. Philip Randolph had for him. You know, Did I you didn't meet really... A. Philip Randolph? Yeah. What? Yeah. You all... never told me that. Yeah, with all the Pullman porters, yeah. Well, Dad, that's how we got to see him, him in the Northwest, one of the Northwest organizers. No, I knew that yeah. part, but I didn't know that. Yeah. What was yeah, he, he came... like? Do yeah. you remember him? I, can't, I was about, I was about uh, 11 or 12. Did you yeah. guys get pictures? Uh, no, we didn't have no selfies in the days. That's why you take all the camera. selfies with CBC members. Yeah. Now. All the selfies. Okay. I didn't know that, Dad. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So we normally do this thing called Rapid Round mm -hmm. um, on the podcast. And um, I didn't write Rapid Round questions for you, but I think I got some 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 good ones. Um Okay. Uh, what is your nickname from the right side of the family? Billy. Yes. And it came from? Billy. No. <laughs> it came from Johnny Billy. Yeah. Granny said you kicked like a horse in her stomach, so she named you Johnny Billy, which was a horse. Which was a horse, right. Okay. That was just a friendly remnant. Most of these won't be that fast. What is our father-daughter favorite song? Should be sliding the family stone. But what's the song? If you want me to stay. Yes. Yes. Um. What is your favorite James Brown song? Saturn brings some toys to the ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't know. I just was asking. Um. What is your favorite brand of clothing? Uh, casual or other. Casual. Nike. <laughs> what's your favorite? Um, attire to wear to a protest? It all depends on where it is. Really? Yeah, I might have to have a suit on if it's, oh, it's okay. in the mayor's office. Oh, well, I've seen you wear Nike sweats to uh, a hearing. Yeah. <laughs> where you're testifying. Yeah, well, that, we were probably ready to do something else that, that after He's the hearing. He's protest signs <laughs> in the back. Okay, what is your your favorite morning drink of choice? Starbucks. Grande almond milk, a decaf latte with one raw sugar. Is it decaf now? Yes. I've been ordering you caffeinated stuff all week. That's what I've been up. Yeah, I Where see you hey? jittering right now. He's <laughs> like, um, who's your favorite rapper? Uh, Sir Mix a Lot. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, it is not. Huh? No, it's not. Well, who, who are you? Who? I don't know. He's Robert. He's from Washington. That don't mean he's your favorite. No shades or makes it like you're not my favorite. Okay, Daddy, what about favorite Motown group? Well, you know, the, the ones are still alive. They don't know. It could be. Oh, okay. You the know, they, the, the, the Tempting Temptations. The Tempting Temptations. Okay. And I got the, the, my, my all-time favorite group, Sly and the Family Stone. But that would, that's a Motown is that Motown? No, they, they wasn't Motown. Yeah, they're just Motown artists. Because mm -hmm. you had me. I know all those songs by heart because we listened to them playing um, them going all the way to. This is my next question. Where were you throwing around a spare tire? What trip were we coming back from? 
I think we were coming back from a was it a skiing trip or something. No, we didn't drive in Oregon. Ski- no, that, well, Lake Tahoe. Lake, okay, Lake Tahoe. We had okay, a little right. mini family reunion in Lake Tahoe. Right, right, right. And you were throwing the tire. Um, what was the name of our first cat? Kitty. No. <laughs> Tiger. Oh, T. Okay. The little what? bastard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, you have to pick one. Bidwist or Domino's? Both. You have to pick one. All right, Domino's. Um, potato salad or mac and cheese? Andrea's potato salad, <laughs> your mac and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, raspberry Delight or Peach Cobbler? The Raspberry Delight. <laughs> Um, what's Skip's wife's name? I, don't, I can't think of it. We have something called a raspberry delight, but she can make it. Yeah, you can make it too. She makes her salty. I don't like salty ones, but I do like. I do appreciate her for that recipe. What about um, hmm, Seattle Medium or Seattle Times? You know, I got to go roll with with the voice of the black community, the medium newspaper. Yeah. And Chris V. Bennett, publisher. Matter of fact, they want you to do something. They have 10 major black publications together, and they're doing nationwide stuff. And nationwide they want stuff. you to submit an article or an interview. Okay. See, can Chris V., I, I told you I was going to get it done. Okay, can I ask my last wraparound? Okay. My last wraparound is your favorite quote, and it could be from anybody. Uh, <clears throat> favorite quote. Say, get the hell on out of here. Oh my god, (laughs) never mind, (laughs) never mind. But no, there's two things I would like to say though before we just let everybody know that first of all, I helped name a street for Dr. King in Seattle, and uh, the next thing is that we uh, and the county that's what I was going to go to. And in uh, uh, shortly after Ronald Reagan signed the, the holiday bill in '83 for the third Monday of 1986. Two county council members symbolically changed the name of the county in 86. Uh, former council member Ron Sims and, and Bruce Olson. And so 13 years later in 1999, I told former King County Council member Larry Gossett, hey, it's been 13 years and this thing, we still have the Imperial Crown as a logo. Uh, there's nothing to reflect that this is Martin Luther King Jr. County. So at that time, Larry Gossett went to State Senator Adam Klein, uh, who was in the legislature, the state senator from the 37th District, introduced legislation eight times, and finally it passed in 2005. Governor Greg Ward came to the county courthouse to sign the legislation. Then it took us 18 months to get the logo. They said, well, we use a picture of the county courthouse as the official logo. I said, that doesn't look like Martin Luther King Jr. So we did prevail. So Dr. King's image is on all county transportation, mm-hmm. sheriff's vehicles, letterhead, business cards, and the flag. And you pass out pens. And we have lapel pens as well. Yes, mm-hmm. we do. So those are those, that's something. So with a handful of black folks and a lot of other progressive people, we were able to get that done. The only municipality in the country, up in the remote northwest, named Martin Luther King Jr., who. Uh, in November, Martin Luther King III will be there. Uh, it's the, going to be the 60th anniversary of Dr. King's only visit to Seattle. Oh, wow. And so that would be... Uh, At Mount have, Zion? No, it's going to be... No, uh, I'm saying that's it, where he went, right? When he no, visited? No, no. Mount Zion was too small. It wasn't a new church. It was a little teeny church. Oh. But, uh, he, where, so where did he go when he visited? He, 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 he was going to speak at First Presbyterian Church, but the whites withdrew the invitation. So the Brotherhood rented Eagles Auditorium downtown. He spoke at Temple de Hirsch. He spoke at the University of uh, Washington. Uh, uh, my friend, late uh, Hank Adams, uh, Native American brother leader, uh, got his professor to invite Dr. King out to speak there. He spoke at two assemblies at Garfield High School. Oh, As a matter of fact, Carver Gaten was uh, Carver Gaten was a uh, first year teacher and I think assistant football coach. He he got to meet Dr. King with Reverend McKinney. Did you ever meet Dr. King? For about two seconds. When I was at Garfield, too, when I heard he was up there, I went up there, and, and Reverend McKinney, you know, was one of them passing things. Oh, this was Brother Rice, so I, you know, it was one of them things. 
But he also went to home a good barbecue. Reverend Kenny said wow. they, he had barbecued at 3 o'clock in the morning. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Do you Is that a regret for you, Dad? Do you wish that you would have more opportunities to sit with him? Well, you know, uh, I would have, but I was try, trying to, and he was being rushed everywhere. Yeah. So the last, last thing you want to do is, you know, but I tell you what, I'm, I want to make sure that his uh, work and his memory is never forgotten. Why is Why has Dr. King been a focal point for you? Like when I think about all of your activism, it's almost been centered around Dr. King. The holiday, the street name, the county, like even um, some aspects of affirmative action to me feel like it's a fulfillment of a dream, right, that he had in the, a way that he talked about economic justice. Why Dr. King? Because I think that uh, he is a person that articulated uh, the needs of black folks in this country better than anybody else. And uh, still, you can hear, listen to his speeches, and, and they're uplifting, educational uplifting. And that's, uh, the sad thing is how little things have changed and how yeah. we're going back to Jim Crow and how we have to fight and be resilient to make sure everybody that's eligible vote, encourage others mm -hmm. to stand up. And you got to stand up for justice, too, because... Uh, if you don't demand things, especially where your tax dollars are yeah. concerned, if you don't demand inclusion, you're not going to get it. Yeah. And uh, that's why people, I encourage people who have civil rights issues to join the NAACP. But uh, our president of the NAACP, the Seattle branch, uh, Carolyn Riley Payne, Yay. is also involved with economic justice. She's a, one of the board members uh, for the MLK Gandhi Empowerment Initiative that's on, uh, working with uh, the, the Indian brothers and sisters and the technology companies. Uh, they have a postal train, 2,400 African descendants of the United States enslaved and or people who work in our community over the next two and a half years. When you consider um, how activism is going now, um, the country just got to a point where they could say Black Lives Matter and it's not an argument. Theoretically, it's still an argument when you look at our paychecks, policy and otherwise. What's the thing that you would tell young activists coming up or people who are considering getting involved as activists or as advocates? What would you tell them? Make sure that uh, it's about helping the people and not yourself, number one. You can't be focused on, well, they said this about me or I wasn't on TV or they didn't quote me. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to do it from your heart. And uh, as long as your heart is, is leading and your brain is leading the way, and don't be caught up with no individual kind of accomplishment. Uh, and then another thing, too, is don't wait for an organization to take up an issue that you see that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Situations create leaders. So you have to, if you stand up, and it's for the right reason, people will get behind you. The other thing is, is that you don't have to be in the street protesting or demonstrating like me. You can send emails. You can make phone calls. Everybody can do something. And the most important thing to do is to vote. Why is that the most important thing? Because then you have a say-so on the policies and laws and representation. That's very good. Well, Daddy, um, my parting words for you are that I'm so proud of you and proud to be your daughter. And this was very educational. I learned today that you met Dr. King. I did not know that. I learned today that um, you met a Philip Randolph. Did not know that and that situations make leaders. That is an incredible quote and definitely the honest to God truth. So if people are willing to stand up to the situation and in the situation that is where leadership resides. I think that um, I'm for so fortunate to have you as my dad. And I know that when they say, um, you know, parents choose their kids and the kids choose their parents, I know that's true. There are so many moments where um, I'm feeling down and you call right at that time. And, um, you know, from all the meetings that you took me to that I didn't want to go to, um, <laughs> for all the times that you took me to Dunkin' Donuts to get a maple bar in the morning and a milk, unbeknownst to mom, every single day, mommy in second grade, <laughs> um, for all the times you zipped up my coat, even when you got my chin. For every time you made me sit in the middle of the back seat because you thought a truck was going to hit the car and kill me. Um, and yes, the answer to your next question, which is, yes, I'm still here. You're still here, <laughs> ain't you? Um, 
And really for all of the tender loving care that you showed my friends who all call you Papa Rai, thank you for being a father to those who lost theirs, to those who um, didn't like theirs, and to those who just needed extra fatherly support. I love you very much, and I'm so grateful for you. And all I can say is you were very fortunate to have Dr. Andrea M. Rye as your yes, mother. She knows this. It's has. the Father's Day edition. <laughs> Mama, you know I love you. We did a whole Mother's Day talk. But yes, Mommy knows that we got ski trips, lunches every day through the end of ninth grade. We got... Uh, well, her grades was better than mine. She was getting 4.0 <laughs> straight through doctorate school, getting her yeah. doctorate. But yes, mommy knows how much. And ski trips every Saturday. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You broke your rib going on one ski trip. Yes, I did. Came out with a headband up here, the glasses <laughs> sideways, a skin forehead. Six yeah, cracked well, ribs. It was six cracked yep. ribs? But that's when you stopped smoking for real. I sure did. Couldn't <laughs> inhale. Thank God. All right. Well, I love you, Daddy. Love you too, babe. Thank you. Who are my children of the light? Striving to do right, my people are warriors. All we know is the fight. Praying to seek God and everything I like. Yeah.